Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the TVP podcast after the festive break. We hope you're refreshed. This week, we're jumping back into fresh episodes, and we've got Michael Mitchell joining us today. Mike is a professional investor who is in the enviable position of having retired at the age of 39 after a career in hedge funds in the States, which he started under the tutelage of famed value investor Michael Price. Juan and Mike discuss his past work in special situations and how decisions are made in that environment, which have different parameters than other types of investing, how he now conducts his own portfolios as a private investor, including a unique approach to concentration, and the importance of the psychology of an investor, especially in regards to maintaining style and the use of averages. Enjoy. Michael Mitchell, welcome to the Bioperspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, I, I appreciate the invite. I am very happy to be here and uh, and glad our friend Toby uh, made the connection. That's great. That's fantastic. I have to say that when I got your email accept, accepting our invite to be on the pod, I was sitting next to my wife. And my wife, she used to be in finance, but she's not anymore. She's a consultant. And she kind of knows some people that come to the pod, but not many of the people that come to the pod. And so I was very happy that you had accepted the invitation. And I turned to her and said, like, you know what? We got Michael Mitchell into the pod. And she's like, who's Michael? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, let me explain to you. So um, he interned with Michael Price, who is one of my all-time idols in this business. Um, he does special situations, which I absolutely love. And you're not going to believe this. And, and she, her expression in her face was like, she was happy. There was a smile. Oh, and then I said, and uh, my understanding is, and you correct me if I'm wrong, uh, when he turned 39 about a couple, a couple of years ago, he retired. He's on his own. And then the expression on her face changed immediately. There was a little bit of twinkle in her eye. I could tell that she was like, like, what have you done wrong then? Like, <laughs> and I, like wait, uh, maybe for you to introduce yourself, how, how do you came to become an investor and what has been the journey? That's uh, funny. That's, that's the, your, your wife's reaction is the exact right one. Who the F is Mike Mitchell? I'm still wondering who they, I totally get that reaction. I appreciate her for it. I, uh, so yeah. So, uh, Mike Mitchell, I'm again, very happy to be on. I, um, I did retire at 39. My history, briefly, I, I um, was not was not born in Oklahoma, but I, I spent the vast majority of my life in Oklahoma as third gen Oklahoma. And my grandfather was a sharecropper and and uh, very poor. My father was a college professor, um, and uh, and I grew up in Oklahoma. Went to school, Oklahoma State undergrad, University of Oklahoma graduate school. 
Um, and and it, it my my professional life sort of came together in 2002, the fall of 2002, August of 2002 in Norman, Oklahoma. I'd gone to graduate school because uh, I'd graduated during the during a very mild recession. I couldn't find a job. I had a degree in marketing, which you know, didn't really mean anything in the state of Oklahoma. So I didn't have any prospects. So I figured I would just go to graduate school. I applied to three schools. Uh, OU uh, was one of the three. And luckily I got in and they had offered me a pretty generous scholarship and then also a teacher's assistant position. So it's pretty easy. And it was in-state tuition. So it was very cheap. It was pretty easy to say yes. And I had kind of decided at that time that I was interested in investing. And OU has a, a benefactor who you mentioned uh, the business school has a benefactor who you mentioned that um, was a pretty famous investor in the 80s and the 90s called Michael Price. And so I, I, I kind of decided when I got into OU that I was going to really push finance, but I wasn't 100% convinced that it was something that I would be capable of doing. Still something I was very interested in. Anyway, so I, I get on campus in Norman in August of 2002, and it just so happens that Michael Price, who lived in um, Far Hills, New Jersey, and worked in Short Hills, New Jersey at the time, was dropping off, that week was dropping off uh, one of his sons uh, to start school as a freshman in Norman. When he comes to Norman, it's this great experience because he's the only person who comes to Norman, Oklahoma on a private jet. So they've got this little bitty <laughs> airport, you know, So and Michael is this like larger than life character. He's not a very, not a very tall guy, but he's this sort of larger than life guy. And he flies in on his, I think it was a Falcon, you know, flies in on his Falcon to the little airstrip in Norman, Oklahoma, and it gets out with his son and, you know, it comes to campus. And he is like, when he's in, in, uh, on campus in Norman, he's like a kid in a candy store. He just thinks it's the coolest thing in the world. Anyway, so he comes to speak to the full-time uh, MBA program. And uh, I think there was 30 of us or 35. It was a breakfast. Um, and he gets up, he's, he's not really a talker. So he sort of gets up at breakfast and, and uh, stands at like a podium so I'm not going to give a speech, uh, but you know my name is Michael Price. I'm an investor. You know, do you, anybody have any questions? You know, and and uh, so somebody, I think it was a professor, raised his hand. And said, "Well, what do you like? You see, you're a value investor. Like, what does that mean?" And um, uh, so I'm sitting in the back of the table, and I'm just my eyes are just like saucers, you know. And I, I, I he was the first billionaire I had ever seen in in real life, and it's like, oh my gosh, this guy's amazing. And so he says, uh, "Well, let me tell you how I do it. So I have a team of analysts." I'll see a stock that's down 50%, something that I kind of know the name of or have been interested in or followed for a while. And I'll tell my analysts, you know, go take a look at this thing and come back to me and tell me what you think. And so in this case, so one example recently was Martha Stewart, Omnimedia. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to forget the exact numbers that he used. So I'll just pull some out that'll be relatively close. But Martha had gotten into some legal trouble at the time. And, and she had a, a public company that she was the chairman of that... Um, uh, that uh, had taken a big hit because of her legal troubles. So, uh, so stock was down. So he told his analysts to take a look, and analysts came back and said, "Well, they've got a TV business. You know, they they have um, she has cooking shows and she has rights to all those. And the TV business generates, you know, whatever thirty million dollars in, in operating profit. And they have a magazine business that does another fifty million in operating profit. Uh, and then they have this Kmart, you know, clothing business uh, that they've got the rights to." Um, that maybe does another 20 million, something like that. And so, well, if you look at the comparables, the peer group for each one of those, and you assign a comparable multiple to each one, you add up all the pieces, uh, subtract out the debt they have, you get to a market cap valuation, and you divide that by the share count, and you get to uh, $10 a share. And he said, the stock is 14, the, the value is 10. And 
He said, I'm a buyer at five. And he's like, that's it. That's what I do all day long. And when he, when he said that, for me, it was this like, oh my God, that's incredibly easy. Like I, this guy made a billion dollars doing that all day. That sounds so easy. I can do that. There's no reason why I couldn't do that. And it turns out it's it's not that easy. But <laughs> in construct, it's pretty simple. Uh, and so when he when he uh, when I had that breakfast, I just was like, oh, this is it. This is my life. This is what I want to do. The stars just aligned for me. Um, and uh, and so I, I introduced myself to him. Uh, after he left, I went to um, we we there was a coordinator for the uh, business school students trying to get them jobs and internships and things, and they had a scholarship program to take students to uh, New York University uh, over the the summer between their first and second year. I got that scholarship, and when I got the scholarship, I went to this person and said, "I I want to work for Michael Price. I I don't care. I'll wash his car. I'll buy mm-hmm. groceries. I'll work for free. I don't need money." And the guy said. You know, he said, look, Michael doesn't take interns and um, and you can't contact him. We don't do that. So he said, you can't call him. So I found his, at this time, this was 02, I found his, uh, his email address on the internet and I emailed him, said, I'd really like to work for you. And, and uh, I'll never forget, I, I, I didn't save the answering machine, but you know, I email him and within a couple hours, he, he calls my, my home phone. I'm in class. He calls my home phone. Then I get home and there's a message on my answering machine that says, yeah, this is Michael Price. I got your email. Sure, I'd love to talk. Just give me a call. And so I, I picked up the phone and called him. And in about five minutes, he said, ah, you can come intern for me. That's fine. And so I interned for him in uh, the summer of 2003. Um, luckily, how many, it, it, how many, where, where was he? Where was he at the time? So he lived in Far Hills on a big ranch. He worked in Short Hills. And I, I don't know if you know uh, northern New Jersey at all, but there's a, a pretty famous mall called the Short Hills Mall on JFK Parkway. Right across the street from Short Hills Mall is a is a hotel, Hilton Hotel, uh, 51 JFK Parkway, and then also a small office building. And that office building, I don't know how many stories there are, five, I can't really remember. Michael was on the second floor of that office building. He had a small family office called MFP. Um, Franklin Mutual uh, had a big office there as well, just you know, right down the hall. And then my first job, so I asked Michael for a job after the internship. Uh, he, t- he told me no, <laughs> uh, very, very nicely, but he told me no. And, uh, but I, I was fortunate. I got a job actually at, you know, 51 JFK Parkway working for Jeffries in their, um, research group covering post reorg equities. And it, it was exactly one floor above MFP investors. So all Michael's analyst and Michael would be, you know, on second floor, I was on the third floor, had a little office doing uh, research and it was stuff that I was just fascinated by. So I, I was still able to talk to Michael and, uh, my first big call as a as a restructuring analyst at Jeffries, Michael was involved in, and uh, so we talked a lot about that. It was it was neat. It was a very good experience. But he was in Short Hills, I believe. Now he bought a house on the Upper West Side while I worked there. He bought the. Did you ever see the movie Panic Room? You ever see that yeah. movie? It, yes. So he he bought the apartment that Panic Room was filmed in. So it had the Panic Room while I worked there. I don't know if he still has that or not, but then he, and he bought a, um, I'm sorry, he, he moved into the city. So all of his analysts now at MFP, I think are in the city. And I think I heard he lives in Rye, but at the time he was in Northern New Jersey, he had been in New Jersey a long time. So I commuted into the city on the weekends to go to school at NYU. And then I worked for him uh, during the week. It was, it was a lot of fun. I really loved it. Those were good times. And how long was that internship for? Just the summer. So I, I got there in May and I worked until August. And then August of 03, I went back to school knowing that I wanted to come back to New York. I had like a two-year, moved to New York, worked for two-year plan, and then moved back to Oklahoma. Um, so I, I came back a lot between August of 03 and then the spring of 2004, 
networking with Michael's analysts, trying to you know buy Michael coffee, obviously, and then just try to meet people and interview for jobs. And um, and so I was back back and forth the city all the time. I left Norman permanently April of two thousand four, and I moved to New Jersey and just looked for a job. About eight weeks, ten weeks later, I had that job at Jeffries, which is another good story. You know, serendipity. Uh, Michael helped me, even though he didn't give me a job. When I had the interview at Jeffries, it was uh, pretty competitive. They were only hiring one person. And uh, I mean, it was it was a job, you know, I, th- I think there were 100 applicants or something. And of course, I was the only applicant from the University of Oklahoma. Um, and I was competing against, you know, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, everybody. And uh, I, I, uh, I, uh, the ace in the hole was, you know, after the first interview, I went downstairs to MFP and, and uh, said hi to Michael and told him I interviewed uh, upstairs. And he, he looked at me and he goes, get out of my office. I'm like, Oh, and we'll walk out of his office. And then he, then, you know, I see him pick up the phone, you know, he dials, he talks for about two minutes and then he's, you know, waves, come back in, come back in. So I come back in. He's like, I just called the head of, you know, high yield trading at Jeffries. You got a job. I was like, boom, there you go. So, uh, my, 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 all my career path kind of circles around, you know, Michael Price and his generosity. And so you were with Jeffries doing as a restructuring analyst, which you don't tend to see that's quite a unique position within a broker, no? It was. Um, so this was a unique time. I mean, this was 04, and there was a lot of restructuring happening. This is post-Enron, WorldCom. There were bankruptcies everywhere from the uh, 04 uh, recession. And so th- there was a lot to do. Um, and we, we haven't had a, uh, a time like that. I mean, even the financial crisis, it didn't last so long that you could really build teams up around it. But uh, Jeffries had, it was, it was kind of the cycle of life at Jeffries. <laughs> they had a pretty active um, uh, high yield banking group. So they would do uh, private notes. They would, in, or, sorry, notes for private companies, notes for public companies. Um, and, and several of those, if we're being kind, uh, would default and then convert into equity. And so they had this sort of need on the, the high yield trading desk and high yield research desk for people who would pick up the equities. Because once the uh, plans were confirmed, and we knew that you know whatever Fulcrum Security was going to get you know flopped into equity. They, the high yield guys didn't want to cover it anymore, and uh, that equity is going to trade publicly. And they still wanted a banking relationship, obviously. So they ha- they hired a guy who worked for Fu Young at, at Merrill um, called Farouk Faruqi. They hired him to be the head of their uh, post reorg, post restructuring equity analyst, and he hired a junior, and I was that guy. It was the timing could not have been more perfect. I mean, there's so much going on. We had a lot of calls. Uh, some of them were actually good, believe it or not. And uh, and he he became you know very popular um, uh, with uh, his clients on the buy side. And one of his buy side clients hired him away. So I was only at Jeffries for a year. I did not make uh, a ton of money working at Jeffries, but that the experience was just awesome. I really I I if it were up to me, I would have worked there for five years plus. Uh, but he left and. I got fortunate. He took me with him. So, and that was my start of, of, of buy side investing was 2005. Okay. So you moved from the sell side to the buy side because you weren't, you went along with him. That's right. Yeah. I, I was sort of stuck. I mean, I was 23, 24 and I, I, I had, I got lucky to get this job, right? I had no experience going in, no banking, nothing. I mean, I just cold call basically and got this job. And so one year's experience I didn't think was enough. So I, I kind of, when Farouk left, I was kind of like, oh, shit, like, am I, is this it? You know, did I have my shot and because he left. So I, I 
I kind of nicely, he may, if he gets him on the pot, he may disagree with this, but I think I was pretty nice. I was kind of pushing him to like, Hey, you know, you're probably going to need a junior. And he was like, yeah, but they'll probably hire me a junior. I'm like, yeah, but you know, we work well together. And uh, after kind of pushing and prodding and pushing and prodding, uh, he, he finally was like, yes, they've got a seat for you. You can, you can come. They, they, um, Jeffries, I, I, they, the, my understanding was that they liked me there. At least the people out in high yield liked me there. I didn't really want to go into high yield research. I was happy to stay in equities. Um, so I didn't, I wasn't too interested to go there. Plus I didn't really have a seat for me. So I would have kind of been bouncing around. There was a guy who covered um, oil services stocks. Uh, Steven Jungaro is like the nicest guy in the world. He's like, well, I'd love to have you. And I was like, Steven, I'd, I'd love to work with you because I like you, but I have no interest in um, oil services. So yeah, I want to stay, I want to do special sets. I want to do, you know, so, um, but I got lucky and he took me with him. And then uh, year later I was out again after he left uh, that hedge fund Kellogg capital. Um, I was out again, but uh, I got lucky again. I mean, my whole life is just like, well, I got lucky and I got lucky and I got lucky. Right. And this, when he left Kellogg capital, you did start your investment career with uh, one of the best investors that has ever existed. So thanks. Yeah. He's, he's uh, yeah, I, I got very, that again was luck. I mean, the fact that he even created a seat for me and paid me, I, you know, I, Still not even really sure why he did it, but it was lucky. And so th- and then I got a job, uh, his senior, Michael's senior analyst at MFP left to take a job at a, a brand new hedge fund in 2006 called Breeden Capital. Um, and I, he needed a whole team. Uh, and I ended up being the first analyst he hired. That was right when Farouk left our hedge fund job. A job opened up with uh, with um, Breeden Capital through you know one of Michael's senior analysts. And uh, I got lucky, he had a seat. So I took it and, uh, you know, the rest is history. I was there for five and a half years. And then I left to take a job at, at Locuswood Capital. I was there for seven and a half, almost eight years. And then, um, as, as you know, the story ends, I, I had a difficult year in 2018 and, uh, I had decided, uh, to move my family to Colorado and we weren't quite ready to move. We're moving in, in, you're catching me right at the end of this story where we're moving in exactly two weeks. Um, but, uh, I was done with hedge funds. I was done with the industry and, I was done with Locust Wood and I, I had been fortunate to do well enough where I didn't have to work anymore. So I just sort of held up my hand and did the you know peace out. And, <laughs> and now I do the podcast circuit. Apparently that's, that's my job. <laughs> that's an incredible journey. Uh, quite unique. Um, so you've mentioned before several times that you, you, your formation was in sort of special situations and you're a special situation type of investor. So, um, that's quite unique and difficult to define. Can you walk us through what exactly is a special situation, what sort of asset securities are of interest to you and what drives your curiosity? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would say it, um, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot to it. So a lot to that question. Um, so stepping back for a second, uh, in your email that you listed some questions, and I consider myself a special situations investor, I'd say it this way. I, I love special situations. I, I find them fascinating because they're always so different. And the way I hear it pitched when I'm in a hedge fund meeting is, well, we, we focus on special situations because we try to find you know, things that are undervalued. And the special situation can often be the catalyst that unlocks that value. In my experience, that's true. And that, that excites me about special situations. Um, things usually what a special situation to me means is there's a fundamental change, right? And that, that fundamental change can, can mean opportunity. And that's where I start to get excited. But 
I don't really consider myself a special situations investor per se. Um, I, I consider myself a value investor. I just happen to really enjoy special situations and I, and I tend to find a lot of opportunity um, in special situations. But really what I'm, what I'm looking for uh, when I wake up in the morning is, is a way to compound my money at 10%. I mean, that's how I spend my time. I, I don't spend my time necessarily uh, looking for special situations. If I can find a way to compound my money at 10% in a slow, boring way, uh, I'm, I'm just as interested in that as a special situation. But what I, what I, um, the, the way my brain works, which isn't necessarily, I, I don't know if it's right for the world. I don't think most people think this way is that I, I sort of gauge everything around this, I, this concept or idea of 10%. And, and I, and it, and I don't know a lot of things. So I, I'm very specific in what I can invest in and what I can underwrite. And I, I also don't feel comfortable that I can predict uh, stock prices, particularly in short periods of time, so say one to two years. So that kind of causes me to focus on businesses and, and their earnings power and what they're doing with those earnings. And I tend to get really, almost when you, when you sort of think of like, I can't really predict the future and I don't feel comfortable in my ability to see you know, big structural change coming. Um, I, I depend on businesses' earnings to sort of pay my 10% that I sort of require. What does that do? That sort of pushes you to things where well, I'm paying less than 10 times earnings, right? 10% yield or more. And I'm certain I'm getting that capital back. And so can I accept my 10% or do I need a premium that 10%? That's really what I'm doing all day. The special situations, I talk a lot about special situations on Twitter because they're fun and they're interesting. And I think there's a lot of ways to, to, you can find a lot of interesting situations where you can make a lot of money around them. And I've spent my career looking at them, uh, but really, the way I think about investing is I'm just trying to make 10%. I'm not really trying to, you know, go out and, and underwrite a special situation that will, you know, give me a 50X or a 20X or, you know, that stuff is great. You know, they're, they're, they're really interesting stories, but, but, you know, I would have passed on probably one of the greatest trades of the last 10 years was um, Thomas Brazil buying Mt. Gox, you know, trade claims at whatever 70 cents on the dollar, getting Bitcoin at, you know, 85 bucks or something like, I never would have invested in that. I mean, he would have pitched me on that. I'd have been like, dude, I don't get it. <laughs> so, is, is Bitcoin nowadays a special situation? Um, I don't know or what Bitcoin it? is. I, I'm, I'll, I'll be the first to admit. I, you know, I, I it's funny, Juan. Yeah, you, you, you mentioned. I mean, I, I brought up uh, Thomas, but you know, thinking about Bitcoin, I had a guy in 2017 when it did its first, you know, uh, rip. My, the fund I work for had a we hired we hired an expert uh, to come in and give us a a, a full download of. Uh, Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrencies, and so, and and I'd like to think that I'm like a rational person who I I kind of understand um, financial markets at least a little bit, and I have a base understanding of economics. And so, I, when he this kid the kid comes in, he's 21 years old, so he comes in, he's the expert, right? So he comes in, he's like, this is cryptocurrency, and this is you know we're creating coins, and here's the blockchain. He walks us through it, and and I I, I asked him questions for about three hours. And it maybe it's two hours. So it was several hours. We were just, you know, just downloaded. So we walk out of the meeting and my uh, PM, Steve says, you know, Mike, what do you think? And I said, well, <clears throat> I'm certain of two things. Uh, number one, I don't understand anything that guy just said. And number <laughs> two, I'm pretty sure everybody else who's buying this also doesn't understand what that guy is talking about. So I don't really love the idea that I'm, I'm making a big bet on something or a bet at all on something investing alongside people who have no idea what they're doing. Like that just is not something that, you know, I, that usually that's like a warning sign to me. 
yeah. and needless to say, I'm the idiot because it's uh, it's done nothing but gone uh, gone basically straight up since. But that's that's just not the way I, I look at the world. I mean, I buy I buy stuff that people really wouldn't be. People look at it and they 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 see something that looks like a disaster, and I see something that I think actually can 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 generate pretty solid returns for me with a with a high degree of confidence even though it's not sexy and they don't have reinvestment opportunities. That's, that's just, I just think differently. I mean, it's just not, and that, by the way, that forecloses me from doing a lot of these like moonshoot things. You know, I would have, had I bought Microsoft using the same criteria in 2013 at, you know, nine times cash adjusted earnings or something, had it gone to 15 times earnings, I would have taken a massive victory lap. I'd have been out of it. And it, all the returns were generated after I would have sold. Right. So if for that thinking that I have forecloses me from some of the big, big moonshoot uh, investments, but I don't really care because it's good for me and it works for me. It's what I do. And I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to do what I do. I'm not, it's not, I don't, you know, I'm sure people look at it and say, well, it's, I don't like that. That sucks. And you're not smart and I can do better. And it's like, I hope you do, man. I really do. I hope you do better. I would love for you to, I don't think it's about, you know, it's, it's just about me being myself and, and kind of staying true to doing do, I, I want to feel comfortable that if I lose money in something, I knew what I was doing. You know, like I, I, I went into it with X and X didn't pan out. And if I were to buy Bitcoin or, you know, I were to chase SaaS at, you know, multiples, I just didn't understand it. You can make a lot of money doing that. So, you know, no, no shade being thrown on my end for people who do it. It's just not what I understand. I, I buy, you know, businesses for low valuations where I think the money's coming back to me. I buy liquidations, which I think is a special situation. Kind of get back to your original question. I love spin splits. I really love situations where assets have been undermanaged or mismanaged, and not even because people don't um, want to do a good job. It's because the incentive structure around the management team and the people isn't set up for them to do well. I'm a huge believer in, in human incentives, and I think that special situations can often refocus people. So I'm involved in a situation now where I think that's happening and people are really getting focused. Formula One was a situation I was involved with years ago where I thought that was the issue. I mean. You had a, a pretty famous uh, Londoner uh, running it uh, by himself, a huge operation for decades, doing a great job. But you just sort of think, well, you know, is there an opportunity if somebody comes in with a fresh set of eyes and you know a little bit of vigor to uh, to maybe improve the popularity of the sport? And I love stuff like that. Like it, to me, I you know I, I hear that and I'm like, well, it just resonates that there's an opportunity to to be had. And if I can sort of you know get excited about it and it fits my bucket of of wanting to get 10 percent returns predictably not necessarily evenly, but that I can predict over a period of time that that's what's going to happen and feel very comfortable that it will, then I get excited. So that's a very, very long-winded answer. And I'm sorry about that. No, no worries. Special situations are quite difficult to define and, and that's what makes them very unique. Um, you, Where does that 10% hurdle rate come from? Uh, you know, they're, they're nothing fancy. I, I just picked it out of the air. Um, I, you know, it's it it for me, um, I, it, it comes from really two areas. So number one, you know, rule 72, doubling your money every seven years, that sounds appealing to me. Um, and number two, it just seems to me like I, with seven, when did I start? Two, when did we talk about this? 2003 was my internship. Um, it's, it's now coming up on 19 years. So with 18 years under my belt of looking at securities, uh, over several different, you know, markets, it seems to me like I should be able to do that. Um, and so it, but, it, but there's nothing fancy about it. I mean, it just eight seems too low and 12 seems too high. I mean, it really, that's how I came to the 10% number. And, and we, we, um, 
I'll, I'll, incidentally, if I hit seven, you know, it's, it's not like that's going to be a problem. You know, it's, it's still going to be fine. But, but 10 just seems like a reasonable number to me. And there's also this when you, you know, compounding is such a, a crazy, wonderful thing. When you sit down and you start doing this math, I was doing this with Carolyn when I retired. And all she, so I'm basically the CFO of her family, right? So she's outsourcing all that. We, I, she's my, you know, CEO and, and my chairman, but I sort of outsource, she's outsourcing all the financial decisions to me. So when I decided to retire, she says, well, can we afford for you to retire? It's like hundred percent. And here's, and I showed her, I was like, here's how much we spend. Here's how much you make, you know, here's how much we're getting from other sources. Uh, and we just don't, we don't spend a lot of money. So I was, I was just going through this and I said, and not only that, here's the best part, you know, I get all animated and excited, right? I'm like, you take what we have and we don't need, and you assume that I can double it every seven years. And so I was like, I'm 39, right? So we double our net worth from the time that our investable net worth from the time that I'm 39 to the time I'm 46 to the time I'm 53 to 60 to 67 to 74. And you start hitting actuarials saying, I'm going to die when I'm 84 years old. And I was like, we are going to die with so much money, we, we're going to have to give it all away. We can't, we're, we cannot spend this amount of money if I'm able to hit this, you know, and by the way, give me, give me a margin of safety, do it every 10 years instead of every seven. And the numbers start to get so wild that I was like, it doesn't, at this point, we've already won the game. There's, we can keep playing the game if we want to, uh, but we've already won. So that, that was, that's where I, I, I like another long-winded answer to your question, but it, it was kind of like, well, I should be able to do this. I feel comfortable that this is a this is a good, you know, attainable target. Not that it'll be easy, but that it'll be attainable. And I also feel like this is good enough where if we just hit this every year, you know, we're going to die with, you know, the the three universities that we give our money to are are going to the real the real debate to be honest, Juan, is like how much of a check are we writing them? And and, and can I curse on this podcast? I don't want to upset Schroeder's. I won't. So, but the truth is, I don't really care, you know, if Yale gets 20 million or 50 million, like, why do I care? Like, you're, you don't need it anyway. So, you know, they care, you know, it's also like the decisions I make today are, are impacting how much money they're going to get, but it's not impact. I'm not giving it to my kids. So they don't care. You know, it doesn't make a bit of difference. They're going to go to, my house is going to be paid for, you know, my wife's practice is going to be paid for, my kids are going to college. I'm going to still take vacations. Like really the conversation that we're having is how much money Yale University is going to get, and the answer in, in the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State University, like the answer is doesn't really matter. Like it is, you know, it makes no difference. So, ten percent feels attainable. I don't know. Fingers crossed. So far, we're we're hitting that and, and exceeding it somewhat. Uh, hopefully, we can, you know, knock on knock on wood. Hopefully, that trend continues. That's fantastic. Um, one thing that I'm interested in is in the evolution of your mental process from when you started as an analyst, then becoming a PM, and most recently, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, being a board member? Well, uh, so probably more, there's been some things that have changed the way I think about the world. Um, and the progression professionally you just mentioned is one of those things for sure. Um, I would say more important than that are the experiences I've had professionally uh, in markets and in business uh, have done more to shape the way I think about the world versus uh, the progression from analysts to, you know, really thinking about structuring portfolio and taking risk and then uh, sort of now moving on to, uh, to board roles. Um, and then there's personal, which is, you know, I, I look at the world very differently today than I did when I started at 24 and had I had no jobs in finance, I would I would still look at the world very differently at 42. 
And a lot of that is uh, you know, my, my age and, and life experiences, but a lot of it is you know, being married and having children and all these things. So I look at the world very differently today than I did when I started. One, some things though are, are constant and consistent. So one thing that's constant and consistent is I deeply care about the fundamentals of a business and an industry, right? That is a business, its fundamentals, the industry, the industry's position, um, economics, economics and the economic structure of these businesses and industries over time. That stuff I've always been interested in. Um, I really love, and I don't know why this is true, but I love complexity. I've just been drawn to it. That has not gone away. Um, I, and, and I, I, I think it's just because I, I feel like that most people are, are kind of too lazy to really do work. And so when I see something that's complex, if I can find some gems in there, um, I start to get really excited. So the, these things haven't changed. The things that have changed are, you know, I used to be uh, very um, uh, uh, okay with how I say sort of uh, blasé about uh, balance sheets. Uh, that is no longer the case. Uh, balance sheets are incredibly important to me today. I think that's just age and conservatism, and then also uh, living through a, a really difficult time uh, with a with a, a kind of messed up balance sheet and a, a mall based jewelry retailer. So um, there are some things like some base levels of conservatism I have now. But then offsetting that, uh, I've also become um, much more concentrated as I've gotten older. So I, I sort of uh, I find one or two things and I just sort of grab onto those things and I, I, I ride those horses until the horses die, you know, and then I, then I just kind of stop and look for something new. And there was a big uh, uh, transition in my portfolio last year. I had owned a large cable company in the United States for years. It had been my, my biggest investment. One point over 90% of my net worth was in it. And uh, I, I sold all of it. Uh, to buy uh, curate, which is which was a special situation last year, and I still own all that, uh, all that curate. So uh, anyway, so that concentration is something that I've, I've gotten more excited about as I've gotten older. But then balance sheets, I've gotten a lot less excited about uh, as as I've gotten older. Um, so you know, there's just those strange changes. Now with the uh, board seats, um, it's it's just very it's a very different. There is a lot of virtue, um, and I used to hate this as a public equity investor, but it's true. There's a lot of virtue to private equity investing. It's not perfect, uh, but one of the things it allows you to do is it's it's almost like when you're driving, you're not scared about you know. But when you're in the passenger seat and somebody's driving like like a madman, you're like, oh my god, because you have no sense of control. But when you're in the driver's seat, you're like, oh, I've got it. Now whether you do got it or not, it's a different question. But that sense of control and private equity, those people in their minds, they they. They never have to mark this to market ever. Like they can always just, well, I've got control. And as long as we're generating cash and, you know, it's, we, you know, you, you can just sort of keep rolling it, you know, what the, what's the, the extended pretend, you know, you can, five years ago, company A uh, was trading for 10 times earnings. Uh, five years later, company A is trading for five times earnings. The earnings of company A are almost exactly the same as they were five years ago, but the valuation is cut in half. Now you could say like, well, that's because the story is changing, go through all these things. If you're at a private equity firm, you own the entire business. You didn't value it at 10 five years ago and value it at five in your brain today. Like it just public markets have decided that that's true. Whether that should be true or not is a whole different conversation, but that's where the public markets are. If you're in private markets, it makes no difference. Like all you, I own the whole thing. It's my business. I don't care. Right. So if you know, public markets want to offer me something I don't think it's worth, the answer is I'm not selling. So, you know, see you later. 
So it, in my mind, there's a lot of virtue to private equity. Well, when you go on um, boards and you, you really get, so you have all these thoughts and views about a company when you sort of go into it and then you get on the board and you like, now you're actually looking underneath the hood, right? So I, everything I thought was up here was public information that, you know, that synthesized somewhat, but also like everybody gets to see this information. So it's not perfectly detailed because you don't necessarily for competitive reasons want everybody to know what et cetera, you get the whole thing. So you get to kind of take a different view, right? So I'm, I'm now locked into this, right? I'm illiquid now, essentially, but I now have perfect up to the minute information. So I know everything about strategy. I know everything about that. And it, it allows you to think much more like a, like a private equity owner, even though you have your public mark. And I think that's an evolution in thinking even when I had the board seats um, in my consumer board seats in my prior life, where I was a board advisor or not a board member, uh, it wasn't my money. So I was investing for uh, a few large pension funds. So it wasn't my money. So when I was on the board seat, it was it was very different. Now with my board appointments, uh, when when a bill comes through and say, "Well, we owe our lawyers, you know, X Y Z for five Z transaction," I'm like actually sitting there going, "Okay, the Mitchell family. So you take this fee." You multiply it by our ownership. How much are the Mitchells contributing to this? And the reverse is true, you know. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, our our PL for last month was Y. It's like, okay, so then multiply that. Now, how much did we make? You know, it's just a different. It's it's a different mentality. I, I personally enjoy it more because I'm so concentrated and I care so much about business fundamentals. And I, I the stock price is like, they affect everybody, myself included, of course. But I I, I also I know that's just part of the deal. Like you're going to have some times where you're, you just feel like a king and you're killing it. And then you're going to have another time where, you know, you're going to have this massive drawdowns. And I, I almost don't even really care, you know, how much the drawdown is or how big the thing is. I'm just sort of like, well, I'm not selling. So who cares? You know, it's like all my socks, they're down, whatever, you know, percent like, well, I don't not selling. So who cares? You know, that same is true, by the way, they rip, they're up, you know, hundred percent, one point QVC was up hundred percent. It's like, Oh, it's great. You know, I was like, I'm not selling. So who cares? You know, it, like it, I'm going to live or die based on the profits that QVC generates and how they return them to me. It's kind of the same with my board appointments is I'm, I'm going to live or die based on what happens, the outcome of those businesses, not necessarily what happens to stock price. So it being on the board though, you can kind of remove yourself from it because it doesn't really, the way the stock market is reacting and one day or the next is like, well, you know, sometimes the stock market gets things right. Sometimes the stock market gets things wrong. And you know, that, 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 you know, sitting that sitting there at the board level and actually looking at everything and surveying the situation, it, it's just a different vibe. And I prefer it. You know, I, I'd rather own a business outright and have the pro I feel like sometimes the profits are easier to predict than stock prices. So uh, I I'm happier to live and die based on profits. Hope that answers the question. Absolutely. This is a podcast that aims to explore how people drive a process that helps them make better decisions when dealing with uncertainty. And I guess one of the beauties of special situations, and I know that you've said that you are not a special situation per se type of investor, but you you you, you deal a lot with special situations and, and you've had a lot of background experience with them. And, and so one of the beauties is that the corporate action drives the situation to the point that if everything goes all right, Potentially, it shortens the time period until it um, unravels. But the opposite is true because many special situations, by definition, are either very complex with many moving parts, which I guess have a lot of 
uncertainty and can take a very long time to to unravel. So how, how do you think about that from a process perspective, your analysis, and how do you deal with that sort of uncertainty? Well, again, every situation is different. So it always depends on the situation. The way I, there's a few things, like I said before, that just don't change for me. So if I, if I feel comfortable, let's say I find a security that I think is, is, is mispriced. I mean, effectively, that's what we're all doing, right? I'm looking for something that's trading for less than I think it's worth. So I find said security that I think is trading for less than it's worth. And as is usual, there's some reason why it's trading for less than I think it's worth. And I, I notice in this case that there's um, a corporate action that I believe has the potential to sort of unlock that value, the catalyst we were discussing earlier. Sometimes those catalysts, like I think it was GE announced they're splitting into three pieces, right? It's going to take two years, right? So the question is, in my mind now, so in my old firm, we used to say it very simply, and I always like the simplicity is, is it meaningful and is it mispriced, right? So is the event splitting into three pieces for GE, is that meaningful? Probably yes. I don't know. I haven't done the work on GE, but probably yes. And is it mispriced? If I can get through the meaningful and mispriced, and I could draw a line from A to B, just investing in the situation, A to B, and make 10% compounded per year, I start to get very interested. The problem is, if I if 10% is what I expect to make, right? So you have to overshoot it because you're not going to be right every time. Like you're, you're, the hope is that you're right 55% of the time, right? So you know you're not going to make your 10% every time. So you kind of have to overshoot it. So in pretty simple terms, if you think it's going to take three years, the question is, can I IRR this investment? over three years, it's something well north of 10% to account for the fact that some of my stuff doesn't go right. And then, you know, if you're counting on something like, in G's case, the healthcare business, which is apparently their crown jewel, if you're counting on the healthcare business to be the driver of those returns, how comfortable are you that healthcare valuations are going to hold up? And, you know, I'm not making a bet today, I'm making a bet three years from now. So like, how comfortable am I that this is what's going to pan out for three years? And incidentally, you don't have to be incredibly comfortable that all this is right. The less comfortable you are, the bigger the margin of safety you need. And so that, that's part of the reason why I say buy, buy things cheap is because the cheaper it is, the, the shorter my duration, the less margin of safety I feel like I need, the closer I can get to that sort of 10% and feel comfortable underwriting it. So the situation that the situation that's going to be very short. So let's think of one example of a, of a corporate action that's really, really, really short. Let's think of a liquidation. So uh, QAnon Land Company, cool, K-E-W-L announces that they're going to look selling their timber assets and they're going to do a partial liquidation. They're going to pay you $100 over the next two years, 92 bucks today, eight bucks in 12 months, and then you get to keep some mineral rights. So they say that it's like, well, okay, what's the stock trading for? It opens at 104. I'm going to get 92 of my bait back now, eight point, all guaranteed, eight points back in uh, 12 months. And I, mean, I say guaranteed, I'll, obviously there's always risk, but like they, they announce these distributions, the risk is slow. It's like, well, I, my, my money's coming back to me so fast. I don't own cool, by the way. I'll just be clear. I just saw, I look at this stuff. It's like, well, if, if you've got, you know, 96%, 95, 96%, 97% of your bait coming back within a year, it's like, how much risk are you really, really taking? Like it, it, it and so then the question is, is the, is the mineral rights worth four? But that to me is a much easier analysis than GE splitting into three and I'm getting paid two years from now. And then I, I then you have to give it some time to think that the pieces might. So all, everything, 
timing is a big component. The complexity of the business is a big component. The complex, some transactions I've lived in Malone world, John Malone and Liberty Media World for a very long time. Their transactions can be insanely complex, like spin merges, tracking stocks sometimes, funky securities, including preferred securities in addition to equities, rights offerings they do. You know, so things can be insanely complex. What I do is I try to just boil it down to one simple little thing and say, well, what bet am I really making? Is it healthcare multiples in three years? So if that's the bet, I'm not super comfortable. So I need not a 10% rate of return. I need a 25% rate of return just to make sure. And then you know you find that rate of return, you get a shot to buy it, you do it. It One of the things with very long-term, I say very long-term, multi-year corporate actions. So uh, one of the recent ones that I did invest in that I, I, I don't own now, but uh, Car Action Services in 2018, they announced a split off of their um, uh, IAA auction services business, uh, salvage auction services business, which is kind of their crown jewel. And when they announced it, they, they announced it. I was excited because I thought the, 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 the implied valuation for their salvage business was, was, was based on their comps or comp. There's only one was pretty attractive and you could create this other business that nobody really wanted, but you could create it for a very, very low multiple. Stock ran up on it. I did all the work. I waited. About nine months later, it was going to be a year split. About nine months later, uh, there was some consternation, public consternation over whether the split would actually happen. And you find out, uh, you sit on the board long enough, you find out that lawyers often, when there's a transaction like that, and I'm in the middle of one now, lawyers tell you, you can't talk about it, right? You just, everything has to go silent. So they stopped talking about it. People thought that meant thing wasn't going to happen. The stock had some squishy earnings. It was down quite a bit. And I was able to buy it because I sort of waited. Like I didn't know for sure that their, their car auction, auction business, KAR auction business, the Remain Co was going to trade all that well, but I thought I was getting it so cheap. There was a price where you would take a swing and uh, we got that. It was like a week where we had that price. And so I was just sort of waiting for the bigger return. I knew the bet I was making was a high valuation on IA. I felt like we would get that. We've gotten so close to where I was pretty sure we would get it. And you know, you get a chance to take a swing. So, you know, for me, it's like every situation is different. I think, you know, it 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 makes sense, like with cool and car and GE, it makes sense in my mind to have a view on all these things because they're just so different. You get these shareholders and analysts who've been covering something for 50 years or 40 years, however long, and they have some very specific view about conglomerate co or, you know, and and it, Reality is like the story is changing, right? It's it's fundamentally structurally changing. That can that can lead to opportunity. So I I I think it's it's really fun to do. I think it can be very very lucrative. You know, you got to pick your spots, obviously, but I think it's very interesting. And to your point on timing, you know, timing for me, it's just a function of comfort level and then the discount that I'm I'm underwriting it to achieve that ten percent. That's that's really the the simple answer. Do you consciously or unconsciously? think about assigning probability scenarios to how the different parts might move or because you are aiming for situations which are quite, uh, I'm not going to say simple because none of this is simple by nature, even though they might sound simple, but you are looking for the less complex, then you don't need that kind of embedded thinking. So the way I do it is I, I so at my old firm, what they used to re require uh, because they had this system that was probability weighting and, and upside and downside weighting cases. And it's called alpha theory, which is a really cool system. If anybody uh, is looking for something that will do this, it was a cool website where you input all your stock ideas into, and they'll say, well, you should buy this much percent of this one and this one. That was a neat sort of <coughs> gut check on what we own. Uh, so I had to do that. 
Uh, I don't do that now. So uh, what I do now is I say, well, Mike, what's a reasonable uh, valuation for this asset that you're looking at? Meaning, you know, it, conservative, not like, don't take a stretch. Don't like, don't give me the best case. Like realistically, based on what you're looking at, what do you think this thing could be worth? When you try to buy it at a discount to that. Now, the other side of that equation is how much do you think you can lose if you're wrong? So I no longer do a low case, a base case, and a best case. I really kind of live on base cases. And then I spend a lot of time thinking about what happens if I'm dead wrong. So like, you know, this company A I was talking about earlier, if I'm dead wrong on company A, dead wrong, what happens? Okay. And and the reason that's important to me is because it, it affects sizing, sizing based on risk reward. If I feel like if I'm dead wrong, I can lose one, but if I'm a hundred percent right, and on my base case, which I think is conservative, then I can make five. Then I'm like, push chips, man. Just push, 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 push. I don't so much worry anymore about, well, if I'm wildly right, you know, this is what can happen. And maybe that's a blind spot for me. I should probably should have done that with Microsoft at nine times earnings. And the, the thing is, if I would have said Microsoft's going to 40 times earnings, I would have gotten laughed out of every, every like this company's been trading for nine times earnings for 10 years. Like, why do you think it's going to, but yeah, so I don't, I don't do the, the, you know, base best low anymore. I do look, I think it's worth this. Um, I think that's you know, real based on private market transactions, based on public comps, just based on rational, like this is what the earnings power I think of this business will look like over the next three to five years. This is a right multiple to use. And then I, 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 my gut check is, well, if I'm wrong, is it zero, right? Like, is it, and, and it's, if it's zero and I, if I've got 20% upside and zero downside, that's, you know, one up and five down, like, no, you know, but if the reverse is true, if it's like, well, you know, invest in a company and we've got, you know, assets that could be sold. We have something that, you know, a way we can, you know, when I invest in a, uh, the small base retailer back in 2007, my, my thesis was that, you know, we had a standby bidder in uh, their largest competitor, which is a company called Sterling. We had a bid out there. We knew it was there. And so my thought was, look, if I'm right, we can make a lot of money. If I'm wrong, I know they want to buy us. And it ended up, the, the problem with that one was we ended up going into a, a, a financial crisis. And turns out when uh, uh, Lehman went under, nobody went out to the mall and bought jewelry, which actually makes a lot of sense. Everybody was just scared. So you weren't buying big ticket items. So I got screwed on that one. But <laughs> ultimately, Sterling did acquire Zale. I mean, that, that was ultimately what happened. And so in my that's the way my brain works is I, I want to know if I'm wrong, how much money can I lose? Part of that, you know, Q&A land discussion we were having or what I was really discussion, it was my monologue. But, you know, how much can I lose? And it's like, well, four points. You know, it's like, okay, I put up 104 and I can lose four. You know, like, okay, you know, it's like, can't lose a lot. So the question is, you know, how much, how much can we make if it works? And then you know, do that risk reward in my head. That That's pretty much the extent. Probability weighting, I don't so much live in that because I just don't feel like my probabilities are that. I, I sort of like assume my base case is probably what's always going to happen. And then, you know, and just want to make sure if I'm dead wrong, I'm not totally, you know, going to totally blow up. That's the, that's the idea. Uh, I heard you once, and I think this is when you uh, were having this talk on Bill Brewster's podcast. I think that you mentioned that it's very important for you as an investor to understand what sort of investor you are and the psychology that, that's driving you. Right. And that you actually describe yourself as 80% Joel Greenblatt and 20% Warren Buffett or something along those lines. Yeah. So I guess I wonder what 
and and something that comes across a lot in this conversation, the way that you think about stuff is very much absolute driven. You don't really care about your your hurdle rate is absolute driven. The way that you're thinking about sizing and opportunities are absolute driven. So, what? How do you keep yourself grounded in an absolute driven mentality when the world of investing is so relative, return driven? Well, it's it's relative because you make it relative. It isn't relative because it is relative. And I know people would take exception to that. And I would say, well, your LPs drive your relative thinking. So, and and I'm not saying that's right or wrong because I, but I don't live making fees from LPs. I, that's not how I pay my bills. So I don't, my LPs, is, that's my wife, you know? So she says, what's a reasonable expectation? And I give it to her and that's just it. If I worked for a hedge fund and I was charging, you know, 150 and 20, and my LPs were like, well, you have to be the S&P. Well, yeah, then that's all I would do, sit around and focus on the S&P. I don't want to do that with my life. I, I personally think that's a mistake. I don't think that's any fun. The reason I, I don't do it, um, and, and the, uh, the pushback on what I'm saying is you can say, well, Mike, what? you could just invest in the S&P. And it's like, yeah, I, can, I, I always have that option, right? I can always go buy the S&P 500. And I actually, in my wife's 403B, I can invest it. So we have invested uh, in the S&P and my kids' 529s is exactly what we've done. And I take no issue with that. I, but that's not what I want to do, right? It's I, and, and it's my money, so I can do anything I want, right? So the reason I think it's important and if, if I were going to start a fund, I would tell all my LPs, if you ever call me and say you've done XYZ relative to the index, I'm sending all of your money back, 100%. I don't care what the index does. If you want to buy the index, go for it, dude. You can go buy it tomorrow. If you want to invest with me, what you should expect to be that I'm going to try to deliver 10% over time. If that doesn't sound appealing to you, run away. You know, Some years will be better. Some years will be worse. I don't care, right? So that that's, and the reason why I do it, so it ties to your psychology conversation. The reason why I do it is I am trying to stay as mistake-free as I can. That's really what I'm solving for. I'm not trying to get the best outcome. I'm trying to avoid the most amount of mistakes. And so you say, well, what would be a mistake? Well, for me, a mistake would be doing something that I don't understand. I'm okay losing money. It happens all the time. I don't mind if my investments don't work out. But what I want to be 100% sure is that I know what I'm doing and I have a thought going in. I'm not buying, you know, whatever, Beyond Meat or Peloton because somebody told me it was a great idea. I'm buying stuff I feel like I understand at a price that I think is more than reasonable where I'm being compensated for the risk that I'm taking. And that keeps my mental framework from going completely insane. So if something goes against me and I, and I don't fully understand it, I worry that I would do something completely irrational, either chasing it or selling it or whatever, leveraging it. My God, please don't do that. So I, I have to stay within my own brain so I limit my mistakes. That's what I'm trying to do. The problem with chasing an index for me is if I spend a lot of time, a guy that I worked with um, used to talk a lot about you know, index is weighted X and we're weighted Y. And you know, I'm like, who gives, like, come on, like what? Like, so you want to start with the index does this and then I should, why don't we just tell our investors to go buy an index? And you know, the answer to that one, right? The answer is, well, because I can't charge them fees if they buy an index. It's like, mm -hmm. okay. So now we know what you're really trying to do is just create a fee machine, which I'm not throwing shit. What's that? It goes back to the incentives that you were mentioning at the beginning. 
Yeah, exactly. It's like they're trying to create a fee machine. And I'm like, I don't want to create a fee machine. I want to have good, respectable returns. And I want to be a trustworthy person that people feel like that they can bet on. And, you know, and, and I want to, you know, do right by my family and not do something stupid. Well, if you put me up against the S&P, what am I going to do? Say, well, the largest weight in the S&P is Apple. I don't own any Apple. So if Apple goes up 40% and I'm flat, regardless of whether I think I did a good job or not, I'm going to look like I did a terrible job. So what's that going to cause me to do? I'm not going to focus on my stuff. I'm going to focus on Apple, right? And I'm going to get excited or bummed based on what Apple, Amazon, all the large, I think the top five weightings of the S&P are, they got to be over 20%. They're probably 25 plus percent. That's where I'm going to spend my time. And I have no interest in looking at Apple every day. I just don't want to do it. So the surefire, surefire way to not look at Apple is to just not care what Apple does. I just don't care, you know? And that keeps my brain free to focus on things I'm interested in, not something that I really don't care about. And what I would tell people is if you're, if you're looking to invest, 99.999% of people, a very overwhelmingly high percentage, should just buy the S&P 500, pay as low a fee as possible, and forget they own it. Just you're, I'm 42. 42-year-old male comes to me and says, what should I do with my money? Should I go buy X, Y, or Z stock? The answer is no. You should buy the S&P 500 every single month. Just don't even look at the price. Just every month, just buy, buy, buy. And yes, you're going to call me one day when it's down 30%. You'll be like, what am I doing? This is a disaster. We need to sell. And I'm going to say, don't just buy, buy. That's the only surefire way I know to get rich investing over time is to just keep buying every single month. Just don't worry about it. Just keep buying every single month. Don't pay high fees. You know, don't like just keep buying the S&P. That's just not what I want to do. That is not how I want. I want to go sit on you know two boards, and I, I want to look at individual securities, and I want. It's like a treasure hunt for me. I I just enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's emotionally gratifying. It's mentally gratifying to me. I enjoy it, but it isn't for everybody. It's you know, it's, and I've, I've been doing this for a long time. So, and I'm still learning stuff every day. So it's not like I'm an expert, but that's why I don't. You know, I don't care. You know, I I didn't buy Apple. Shame on me. You know, I didn't do the work on Amazon. Shame on me. But you know what? I don't care. So it, again, it's my money. Like LPs aren't calling me telling me I suck. So, and if they were, I just send them their money right back. Again, nobody wants to do that because they've created fee machines and I'm proud of them. Like that's a great way to get rich, but it's just not how I want to live my life. How, how much of that uh, mental process comes from formation? I mean, by that one single, very unique summer internship with someone like Michael Price, who probably thinks just like that. So, you know, Michael, I really wish it's, it's probably my biggest professional regret as I would have loved to have worked with Michael for three, four or five years to really get inside and understand how he did things. And I, I know he had a, a, based on what I've read and the conversations I've had, he had a very specific way of doing things when he was at Mutual is, for example, taking, you know, Chemical Bank and merging with Chase and some really big, you know, deals. And he was very active. And then I, as, as I switched to a family office, there was a little bit of that um, when I was there in 03. And then, but now I, I see a lot less of that. There's some activism stuff and some things going on, but his portfolio is pretty broad and he owns a lot of different, you know, as uh, John Malone would say, like, a lot of dogs and cats in there. And, and it's just a different, it's different from what I'm used to. And I'm not sure, cause I wasn't there. I don't know what the the transition was over time. What I read about Michael, of a guy who's like constantly looking for undervalued securities, and if they're being mismanaged, coming in and shaking things up to get them managed appropriately to have stock prices work, that's something that's always just resonated with me. I've loved it. I do. I, I do think that um, it's different. So as I worked at Activist Fund for five and a half years, 
Uh, I do think a lot of boards and management teams with information where it is now and with you know the disclosures where they are now, I think a lot of those firms, especially the bigger ones, have already done all those things. So I'm, I'm not really sure that there's as much the, the sort of dirty secret of the shift of activism, at least that I've witnessed, is it really went away from, from buying undermanaged companies that could be fixed, like National Beverage in 1986 with Nelson. It was 86. You know, went away from buying that. And it went to like, let's buy something that's incredibly high quality and pretty well managed now. But then we can come in and, and suggest some changes around the margin to like, you know, maybe improve returns you know, as a suggestivism over over activism that Value Act kind of kind of pioneered. And, so yeah, you know, it's it's just different, and that and by incidentally, that's an easier way to make a buck, and it's a more consistent way to make a buck. So again, I'm not throwing shade at it. I think it's smart, but that that old school, you know, 1985 Michael Price stuff that I really love and gravitate to, it's just not around so much anymore. You you really just don't see it, uh, and maybe one day it'll come back. You know, we'll see. Uh, that of size as well. What's that? Is that a function of size as, as they became so big then they couldn't hunt in, in those parts anymore? It, I think it's a combo of a lot of different things. This is me just kind of spitballing because I, 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 I've been out of the activist game for a long time. But I think size of it where they get so big is part of the issue. Um, I also think part of the issue is that markets are just – markets have gone passive. So the, And it's, it's not just the amount of money that's passive invested. It's where the flows are, right? So it's all the new money is getting cycled into passive. And that shifts. It, it, it almost doesn't. It's funny. I was, I was thinking about this today. Uh, the guys who've done very well, and I mean very well over the last decade, have been very focused on flows. It's, it's not even valuation that matters. It's where the money's going to move to because money moves around. Now, some of it always goes into this, these certain securities because we're buying S&P 500, but other money just sloshes around. And if you can get there before the money, it's like you can, you know, when the dollars show up, when there's limited supply and a bunch of money that comes in, right? What happens? So it just explodes and people get those flows right. It's not a game that I, I know how to do and that, and that I really would care to even try, but people have done. I think part of the problem is so much of the flows have gone away from active and they've gone into passive. And so managers themselves have become, you know, innately focused on how to get involved in these um uh, index funds so they can get part of these passive flows, right? So they can be, and it, and that, you know, governance is part of it and doing the right things is part of it. You can go find companies that are completely mismanaged. Usually they're small. So to your point about the, the, the hedge funds getting too big where they can do it, uh, usually they're small. And, and to be honest, like it's way easier not to pick on one specific company, but it's way easier to just go buy Cisco, you know, and then go in and say, you know, you need to improve your distribution among the QSRs. Uh, than it is to go find a 200 million, you know, market cap company that's completely mismanaged. Then when you get in there, work for you know 80 hours a week for two years to unwind all the booby traps they've set up because they just didn't want to leave. It's just it's just easier, and I think that's part of it. And it sells well. You know, you can you can raise a lot of money on you know the Cisco or Chipotle or you know some of the really bigger names that activists can invest in. It's easier for them. You can raise more money around it. Frankly, it's it's what I would be doing if I were if I were those managers. I, I read once uh, Jason Swig saying that an average conceals more than it reveals. And then I heard you in Value After Hours making the, the very good point that the concept of the average is just a construct that doesn't exist. Yet the investment community is always some 
will tend to normalize numbers towards a sort of average. So your profits will normalize to a median or, or an average or your margins or whatever. So I was kind of wondering, I, I thought that was very interesting when you said that the average doesn't really exist. So how do you think about it? How do you incorporate that as part of your analysis when you're thinking about the future and building, building a business or situation where you think about base rates? I think in general, um... Reversion to the mean is real, you know, and, and, I, and in my, this is my personal opinion. You will find exceptions always. So there, there's always a standard oil that will, will outperform and it, they will just find themselves in a situation where they outperform and regulation incidentally doesn't even stop them from outperforming. Those, those do exist. But I think for the vast majority of managers, for the vast majority of businesses, I think if your base case is that um, uh, reversion to the mean will not happen, I think it really should stress test that <laughs> and and probably more importantly uh, have a have a view as to if this does happen, will I recognize it and then will I and how much money will I lose so i so there's reversion of the mean for businesses and industries that's the toby thing you know the 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 uh, the deep value book is that we're all businesses are going to revert to the mean profits will revert to the mean all of these things. I think there's a lot to that His, history has kind of shown that in capitalism that that's that's just what tends to happen. Of course, there are always outliers. I think the difference is there's not always a lot of outliers. I think the market's kind of predicting that there will always be a lot of outliers right now, and I'm not so sure that that's the case. I guess we'll find out. When it when you're thinking about investment managers and investing around averages and the mean, that's where I, I kind of am like, well, you know, the mean isn't the, the average. The S and P 500 of average, like that's not so bad. You know, that that's not a bad outcome. Like it it, it is. Very few investors over time do better than the S&P 500. And my guess is, is that um, the ones who do a lot better for a period of time, so some of the more famous investors now who did much better for a long period of time, they've now raised so much money in their performance. If you look in any sort of like, you know, five-year trailing where they get over $10 billion in assets, they, they really tend not to, uh, in a lot of cases, even before fees. Um, so I, I sort of look at it and I'm like, well, you know, it, it, it's hard to outperform uh, the S and P 500 over time. There's you know a million studies that show it. So I, that's why I sort of look and say, well, you know, if you want that, you you can get average. It's it's very cheap actually to get average, and, and actually surprisingly really good for most people, even though most people don't do it. But yeah, I, I'm a believer in reversion of the mean. I'm a believer in market averages. I'm also you know I I, I tend to I, I tend to get really stressed out when 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 um, Overconfidence really stresses me out. So it's something where I'm, you know, it's some sometimes it's very justified, but it, it really stresses me out, and that makes me think that, like, whenever anybody says, "Oh, it's this is going to be so great for so long," I'm like, "Ah, oh, we'll see." I don't know. I, I you know, I, I, I haven't been doing this that long. You know, I've only been at it for what do we decide, 18 years? Maybe I'll maybe I'll be proven wrong. I, I would like to be. I'm also uh, not stubborn in that. So if anybody jumps up and says, well, you don't understand, it's like, yeah, no, I don't understand. There's a lot I don't understand, I, I freely admit. So not a great answer to your question, but I, 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 I'm I, very suspicious of the uh, the conversation around uh, averages and better than average in particular. Uh, so anyway, I guess the time will tell, we'll see. Mike, we're coming to the end of our session. And we always ask our guests two final questions. One is uh, an example of a, uh, a bad decision that you've made where the outcome was poor due to bad process rather than bad luck. And your question is just a, a book recommendation. 
Um, let's see. So bad, a bad decision led by a bad process. So the worst investment I've ever made, which I talked about, was that mall-based jewelry retailer. Um, the, the area where I messed up on that one, um, I, I feel like my analysis itself was fine. Uh, I don't really have to take issue with that. What I do take issue is how I dealt with it once I, you know, once I was a board advisor and how I was telling them what to do. I was very aggressive with them. That was a bad pro- that aggression was a bad process because it didn't leave us room if things went against us, and it, it structurally cost us money. I mean, there was, there's no doubt about it. The money that I invested in a Sherry, well, I didn't do it. I, the money that I I I told them to invest uh, in the stock or, or recommended that they invest in the stock uh, ended up not only uh, costing them money on those purchases, <coughs> but then taking away their liquidity at the wrong time. And uh, that's really shaped my thinking uh, as I've sort of gone forward. I'm, I'm, I'm much less excited about doing that now uh, because I've seen that the outcome of that, if, if it, it's led to a lot more conservatism I have in my, my 30s and 40s than I did when I was in my 20s. Uh, so I've, I've seen stuff go really south. And so that, that's one where the underwriting wasn't so terrible, but then the way I, I went about it, the recommendations I made and the things I voted for uh, at the time, I didn't have an official vote, but the things I sort of recommended um, I, I do sort of take issue with. So that, that's probably the number one thing. You know, I, I have held on to things for too long um, until is, I, I often like wait for total clarity that I'm wrong as opposed to, and it's not out of being stubborn. It's that that I don't, I really do not want stock prices to influence my thinking. And then a lot of times that that works out. Sometimes this, the stock is dead right to be, you know, way down. And I, I just sort of hold, I just look at the fundamentals. I talk to management and you know, sometimes that's caused me to hold some things that underperformed for a long period of time that I was just like, well, you know, that was QVC years ago. That's the one big example I had of that is I, I held on to it for probably a year longer than I should have because I just was not convinced that the business was going against me. And I waited until it was pretty clear that the business was definitely going against me. And then I changed my mind and sold it instantly. I bought it all back because they something changed. And so I kind of came back to it. But that's another uh, example of something that I'm, I'm not sure. I wonder if I would have been a little more open-minded if I would have been out of there a little bit sooner, but we'll never know. Um, on books, so I have, uh, I've, I've, I've read several books recently, none of which your audience would be interested in. They're all about starting a, a private practice uh, for a physician. If anybody ever decides they want to go out, that they're a physician and they want to start their own private practice, uh, please hit me up on Twitter. I can give you good. There's not a lot of good books out there, but I can give you some good recommendations. Um, you know, my 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 favorite investing books. Um, there's there's a there's a there's a book that uh, that Munger recommended a long time ago that I really love. It's so long I only read it once. It's called Guns, Germs, and Steel. I really like it because it's it's not investing. It's it's all about humans and human systems and how things have sort of played out the way. And it, it was it was a book that really got me to got me thinking. Um, I I do love uh, The Outsiders by Thorndike. I think that's a wonderful book. If you haven't read it, you should absolutely read it. Uh, and then of course a, a plug. Probably my favorite investing book of all time is uh, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius by Joel Greenblatt. I, I, that's like the, that's the Bible for special situations investing. It's, it's really, it's like an actual how-to book. So if you haven't read that one, I would. That's fantastic, Michael. Thank you very much for being part of the Developer Perspective Podcast. Yep. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.